and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm super excited to welcome Jana Bastow. Um, Jana is the founder of ProdPad and uh, has been in product for a long time. Uh, so welcome. Well, thanks so much for having me, Holly. So I would love to start with a little bit of background, um, kind of learn about you know how you got started in product and, and how you got to where you are today. So um, tell me how, uh, you know, how did you first come across this, this discipline of product management? Oh, like everyone else, completely by accident. Uh, I never meant to get into product management. I dabbled in uh, a mixture of different things, a uh, little bit of design stuff, a uh, little bit of uh, customer support service type stuff, a little bit of sales stuff. I uh, tried to do some business stuff in school. Um, turns out I was kind of one of those jack of all trades. And uh, while I was a customer support rep in my, one of my first early jobs, uh, my boss pegged me as somebody who was uh, good at calling BS when I saw it and made me a junior product manager. And at that time, I had no idea what he was talking about or what that was, but it certainly sounded better than what I was doing at that time. So I accepted the role and sat down at my desk and Googled, what is product management? Uh, And that started my journey into what it is that I do now. That's awesome. Um, and at that point in time, was, were, there, were there very many other product managers at the company you were at or um, were you, did you not have many peers there? There was really nothing around. So this was a company that had been around for uh, 10 years. It had gone public at this point in time. Uh, It had a product, but it had no product managers. And so I was plucked out of customer support and made a junior product manager. They plucked somebody more senior out of development and made him senior product manager. Neither one of us had product manager backgrounds. There were no product managers in the company. And this is a 400-person company, and uh, we had no experience. And they just put us in a corner and told us to go do product management. Uh, And so both of us were absolutely baffled and bemused, and we just sort of started figuring it out from there. Uh, And so we learned it from the internet and from other folks around us, like uh, from from what we'd read online and, you know, tried to figure out what it is that our execs wanted from us. Wow. So it was really... Truly trial by fire. We had no idea what we were doing and, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, spent a couple of years just, you know, trying to figure out what they meant by a roadmap and a PRD and uh, and that sort of thing. Mm hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a really, a really trial by fire kind of situation. Yeah, and I'll um, be the first to admit that the first, the first couple of years were, um, you know, did it all wrong. Um, you know, I was writing huge, long, massive PRDs. I was writing UML. Um, I wrote, my first spec was 80 pages long. And it was only when I showed it to everyone, I was super proud of it. I thought it was perfect. Uh, I thought it outlined everything that we needed. I had every, all the, every design in there. And I remember the moment that one of my developers said, well, yeah, but of course I didn't read the spec. No one reads specs. And I realized (laughs) that I was never going to write another spec like that again in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. That's really funny. Um, uh, One of the things that I love to kind of find out about is the 
the role um, or the relationship between the people who are practicing product management and the, the leadership of a company. Um, and so I'm super curious with the story that, that you're telling here. Um, do you know like how these executives, like how does a company get to be 400 people large without a product manager and then all of a sudden realize it's something they might need? Uh, so in this particular case, it seemed to be a company that um, I think lucked out in some ways. It, it it found a particular niche uh, building in e-commerce when e-commerce was, you know, striking lucky and doing well. Uh, and so it picked up on it and grew. It was a, sa- a sales heavy type company. Uh, and so it was only as it started hitting that market maturity and plateauing as competitors started coming in and they started having um, other uh, players coming to the market who were faster, smarter, leaner, uh, and more product savvy that they started realizing that they needed product management to compete. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure what was going on in their heads because I didn't have a seat at that table at the time, but I suspect it was something like that. They started looking around and seeing that there were um, other companies who were, um, uh, you know, bringing in product management, uh, that they realized that they needed this themselves. Um, I think there was an element of cargo culting, as in they saw other companies doing this and therefore they needed to do it uh, because it was quite literally just a, oh, well, they have product people and they do agile. So we're going to have product people and do agile. And it was very much the literal do agile as opposed to um, actually think agile and be lean. Um, they, <laughs> they they just sort of um, uh, sort of went through the motions of it rather than uh, actually change the way that the company thought and uh, you know um, uh, uh, and and actually started changing the way that they they worked, uh, which I think a lot of companies went through at that point in time. It's very painful for a company to properly change the way that they work if if what they'd been doing previously was working. You know they they built something and companies came and they were making money. It's really painful to realize that the way that you were working previously just isn't going to get you from, uh, you know, that next big step or isn't going to defend against, you know, this onslaught of new companies coming at you, nipping at your heels. Yes, it sure is. And uh, I guess hindsight can be really helpful, right? With hindsight, it were, oh, yeah, that's probably what they were thinking. But um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, had I had a seat at the table or, you know, in hindsight, if I'd known everything that I know now, I probably would have advised them to uh, train their teams in what Agile actually means. And not Agile with a capital A, but Agile with a little a, and to really think about what steps they were taking. Because there were some monster projects that were put on the table that were just broken down into sprints, but were actually just mini waterfalls uh, disguised as sprints. Um, and, you know, my job as the product manager was basically just to shoo these sprints through. And I didn't know enough then to stand up against that and say, no, we're not being Agile. We're just acting agile we're not actually taking the time to iterate and to learn from this stuff uh, so it took quite some years to realize that this wasn't the right way of doing things and to learn to stand up for the the art of measuring and learning and iterating yeah so um, so then how how did you start to learn that what what came next <laughs> lots of uh, lots of failure, lots of trying and failing, and uh, you know, learning things uh, uh, as we go. Over time, I um, uh, started seeing uh, different projects take on uh, lives of their own. About ten years ago, I moved to the UK and joined a uh, startup based here in the UK. 
uh, and started working with a much smaller, much nimbler, leaner team and started seeing what it was to be able to iterate and move fast and uh, what it was to be able to uh, have that direct contact with the customers and to be able to build something and get it out there and have permission to be able to change something on the fly and that sort of thing. Uh, and that gave me a real taste for what it was to be lean. Uh, and that was, um, I think, almost a, had almost an addictive quality, I think, uh, to have that ability to um, uh, to iterate and to, to be able to measure something directly and to, to change things uh, as we go. Um, and uh, uh, I learned a lot in that position. And a lot of what I learned, I've been able to apply to different roles and in uh, different positions as I've, uh, as I've moved around. I like how you said that had an addictive quality. I mean, it's kind of like um, once you've been through that, once you've worked that way, um, the other ways all seem just completely silly. Like, you're like why would I not do that? But um, if you haven't tried it, you don't know what you're missing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I find that even I find that even small companies tend to uh, easily find themselves in that trap um, of uh, you know Melissa Perry calls it the build trap, where you you catch yourself in this um, this pa- this pattern of uh, building and building and building because getting new things out. Um, again, has this addictive quality because every time you get a new feature out, somebody, uh, you, you know, that new feature gets you that next download or that next um, uh, sale or that uh, accolades or that press release or whatever it is. And it, it does become quite easy to to fall into that. Uh, but it is important to think about uh, taking that step back and looking at uh, uh, figuring out as to what, you know, whether that thing that you built is in fact the right thing uh, you know, did it work? Did you solve the problem? And even small teams tend to fall into that pattern of going, well, you know, we've, we've built something uh, just because we finished a, a sprint and it was successful. Was it actually truly successful? Did it solve that? Uh, and so even in small teams, I've had to take that step back and say, um, you know, should we be uh, ring fencing a group of us to go explore over here? Should we be breaking this off into two tracks or should we be taking a step back and taking, you know, two sprints out to go measure something? You know, how can we break up this work to get in this discovery sprint or process or hackathon or whatever it is we need to do to uh, to make sure that we're, we're, we're discovering as much as we are uh, delivering? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just out of uh, curiosity, when you joined the the startup and started to work that way, um, what size and stage was the startup at? I think when I joined, we were about 10 people. I was going from a 400 or 350 person company down to about 10 person. So um, culture shock, but in a really good way, really healthy way for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that. I uh, I actually really love the less than 10 people teams. Um, I've worked on a couple and it, it's, yeah, it's, it is so different for me. It was the other way. I think I'm more, when I went from that to over a hundred, I was like, what? <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, we're going through that, uh, in the opposite direction here at Broadpad, uh, we've just grown from 10 to 20 people and, uh, looking at and keeping an eye out for the warning signs of, uh, you know, what kind of things might be slowing us down at what point mm-hmm. in time do we need to look at, you know, is there anything that, are there any warning signs of us going, Hmm, should we be stopping to, uh, carve off extra time to spend in discovery or, um, you know, are, are there any signs of us not spending enough time, uh, uh, you know, going back and 
thinking about the iteration and the measurement side as opposed to just the build side, uh, because it's a lot easier when you're 10 people and you've got that sort of, you know, easy communication, 10 nodes, uh, you know, the 10 people and the simple nodes of communication. Once you've doubled that, um, obviously we're aware of uh, what kind of changes that might make, let alone when companies go to 100 people. So uh, very aware of uh, how things might change as we grow. Yeah. So you're in a really interesting stage. Um, I want to hear about that, but take us back a little bit more to just founding it. What what made you go and, and found ProdPad and, and um, what does that, that stage look like? So the founding of it, I think, goes back to the day that I got my job as a junior product manager, as in I went back to my desk and looked up what is a product manager, and I had no idea what I was doing, but I did start finding information about the fact that, well, I needed to do roadmaps, and I needed to write specs, and I needed to talk to my customers, um, and so I started looking up resources to do so, and there didn't really seem to be anything there. Um, and so I was looking up like what kind of tools I was using and, and everything else. And along the way, I found that I was, you know, having to lean heavily on um, spreadsheets and whiteboards and PowerPoints and things like that. And I was kept an eye out for tools to use this stuff, but I never really found anything. So over the course of the years that I was there as a junior, and then once I moved to the UK, um, I took with me the PowerPoints and the spreadsheets and the the sort of tools that I'd hacked together. And I've been making wireframes and, um, uh, uh, you know, bits and pieces that I've been carrying with me. And I had this idea, this nugget of an idea of uh, something that I might build for myself, uh, but I wasn't a developer myself uh, or certainly wasn't able to build something uh, by myself uh, until I met my co-founder, Simon, who was a product manager like myself, but had back-end development skills. Uh, and for, at first, I just showed him the idea of what I was trying to do because uh, I wanted feedback from a fellow product manager about you know this idea of a tool set. He gave me some feedback on it and then said that it would be easy to build because he could build the back end. And I pointed out that I could build the front end. And this is back in 2010 when, you know, back then you could build the front end out of jQuery and Bootstrap and call it a day. So pretty easy. He built the back end out of Symfony, um, PHP back end. Um, and uh, yeah, we started hacking away. It was a hack project that we did on weekends and evenings. Uh, didn't quit our day job because we were both working uh uh, you know, leading product at uh, a couple different uh, startups based in London. And it was just this uh, tool that helped us do our day jobs. So it's a tool that helped us build our roadmaps to share with our teams and helped us write our specs, um, certainly leaner specs and simpler specs than the old PRDs that I used to write, um, something that our developers would actually read. It was something that helped us collect our feedback from our customers and tie it in with whatever whatever it is that we were building and putting onto our roadmaps, and then combine it all together so that our teams actually knew what it is that we actually did uh, and understood where their ideas were actually going. Um, so it started off as just a tool to help us do our own jobs. We didn't actually quit our day jobs until 2012 when we started showing it to other product managers around us. Uh, and they started wanting to get on, in on this thing. Um, but at that point in time, it didn't have a website. There's no way to buy it. There's no invite system. There's no onboarding system. So we quit our jobs, spent six months turning it into something you could buy as a SaaS tool, launched it in 2013. And we launched it with the idea that we didn't want to go for that whole thing of getting funding and uh, raising money and uh, you know creating this big um, venture-funded business. We just wanted to build something that added value to customers and could be customer-funded and, and uh, build a business that way. Uh, so we focused on that and got our first paying customer within the month. 
Uh, and that first paying customer is actually still with us today. Uh, still product manager who uh, uses it today, which is fabulous. And today we have more than a thousand customers around the world who use it to build their roadmaps and write their specs and collect the feedback from their customers. Uh, and uh, we're still completely customer funded bootstrap business uh, and 20 people in the business as of uh, actually we just grew to 20 people as of last week. That's phenomenal. Uh, congratulations. That's a, that's a really big milestone. No, oh, thanks so much. Oh, that's great. I, I love hearing about, um, you know, I, I actually really like the term customer funded as opposed to bootstrapped. Um, but uh, <laughs> some, some people use that bad word I hate called lifestyle business. And I'm like, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a business at the end of the day. Um, and it's, you know, we, we get our money by providing something of value to customers. It just so happens that we've, we've uh, spread the load amongst our thousands customers. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> I agree. The first time I heard the word lifestyle business as a, as a you know, derogative term, I was like, what? what? Yeah, but that's, that's really phenomenal. So um, I think I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of the, the pace and the journey along there, because um, I know especially one of the benefits of not getting on the, uh, not buying a ticket on the rocket ship that may or may not make it out of the atmosphere um, <laughs> is it's a great uh, analogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I only joined those rocket ships once they'd already been proven to sail. And then I was like, okay, I'll have a right, seat. Yeah. I'll have a seat here. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, I, I've um, been on that rocket. I've been on that rocket ship and they haven't sailed. Uh-huh. Um, and you know what, it's, it's, it's often a, a, you know, there's so many different factors that, that play into that thing. Um, mm-hmm. and it's heartbreaking. It's really, really difficult. And that was one of the forces that came into it. You know, like I, I've been in companies that hired amazing people and had great aspirations and had everything in place and just didn't make it for whatever reason. And it was just heartbreaking to see things come and go that way. And I didn't want to uh, be part of something like that. I didn't want to build something like that. So when you go, uh, when you go this way instead, um, the pace can be quite different. And, it, and yeah. you have so much control, but also so much responsibility, right? Um, and so I'm curious how, how that has gone for you and, and what, that, what that journey has looked like, you know, particularly, say, after, after the point where you launched it as a SaaS, um, what yeah. were the first couple of years like? <laughs> All right. So some, some words of wisdom in hindsight. So um, I remember people telling me that, uh, you know, it takes seven to 10 years to get anywhere with a business before it turns into anything that you can really write home about. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I should have taken that gone and understood how much effort would go into it. Um, because the first two years, honestly, was actually just building it on the side and not quitting my day job. I was working for a funded company with a salary. I couldn't quit my day job um, because I needed that salary and I was working in London and I was just learning the ropes and um, needed it to uh, to pay, basically pay the bills. Uh, once we quit our day jobs to go focus on it, I was still doing, uh, I paid the bills by doing uh, consulting and mentoring and training. I, I was lucky enough that I could do that in the product management sphere. So I was doing product management training and mentoring and consulting, which had the benefit of me being able to learn about how um, 
product management works in a huge variety of different companies and therefore how ProdPad could work as well. So it actually exposed me to different customer groups and, uh, you know, different how product management works all over the place, which informed how ProdPad itself was built. So it's actually a nice virtuous circle in terms of user feedback and how we built the company. Uh, I know it paid the bills at the same time, uh, but it did slow down the pace of growth in the company because I had to spend a lot of my time working and paying the bills rather than actually building the company itself. Uh, I also had to admit that I wasn't the best developer in the world. I was building based on what I could copy and paste from Stack Overflow and what I could learn from what I could do in jQuery, which was never a skill that I was particularly good at, but just good enough at. You know, I mean, we had our first couple hundred customers based on something that I built in my bedroom uh, and that my co-founder built in his bedroom. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it's the, the prototype stood up longer on its own than it probably should have. It was a long time. It wasn't until 2014, 2015 that we were able to start hiring anybody to help us out with it and turn it into anything. Um, and there was a really, really rough patch in 2015 when we started hiring people um, and we started seeing our cost base creep up. As a matter of fact, it started passing our um, revenue base and it got scary. It got quite squeaky bum. Uh, and we started looking at options of, well, do we get the company funded, even though it may not be the best option or not exactly what we wanted to? Uh, what kind of things do we do? And we had to really start thinking about options for the company. And the best option we had was actually to double down on what we're good at, which was focusing down on uh, improving the product itself. We really, um, one of the problems that we had early on was that we uh, built the product we had a um, decent number of people coming in from uh, blogs that we'd written, like how to do a roadmap, how to write specs that your uh, team will read, that your developers will read, how to write personas. So we had an okay funnel of um, customers coming in. And this is our content strategy, but it was just blogs, basically, myself and my co-founder writing. Uh, we had a uh, decent number of people starting trials from that. Uh, we had an okay number of people who, are, who, if they started trials, they would try it out and they'd use the the product and they'd uh, sign up. And once people signed up, we had a decent number of those people sticking around, right? So we, we had an okay funnel there. Um, and we did this whole thing of, because we're product managers, um, uh, you know, we did the whole thing of build it and they will come. Uh, we didn't have much in the way of marketing. We didn't hire our first marketer full-time in-house until end of uh, 2018. Um, so at this point in time, 2015, we didn't really have marketing per se. Uh, but what we did have was a, a leaky funnel in our onboarding rate. So what we realized is that we had a lot of people starting trials, but not a lot of them actually quite getting it. Like our onboarding flow kind of sucked because ProdPad was uh, somewhat of a complicated tool. It didn't really explain itself well once you started your trial. Uh, we knew that if we were able to tell people about the tool, do a demo to them or walk them through it, they'd get it. But if they didn't get that, then oftentimes they wouldn't get the, the roadmap, which wasn't a, um, the roadmap isn't a timeline roadmap, it's a lean roadmap. So it's the now, next, later format. Some of the, the ways that we do stuff isn't necessarily uh, well explained, uh, or at the time wasn't well explained on the website. So we had a uh, pretty high drop-off rate from the trial sign-up. Uh, and so we decided to really, really focus down. We had to drop everything we were doing, all development work, all work that we were doing, and focus on improving this one conversion rate. And as the expense of all of our work, uh, we cut down all of our cost base, everything, and focused on this one conversion rate. And it worked. We managed to do a few things. So one of them was we actually focused on uh, changing the trial length. So we used to have a 30-day trial, but we looked at the um, 
the numbers and we did an analysis and we looked at what kind of activities people would do in their trial um, and we realized that we could tell with 85% certainty by day nine who was likely to buy or not. And so if we realized who was going to buy by day nine, why did they have an extra 21 days to make up their mind or not? Why don't we just ask them for the credit card on day nine or some other day? Why 30 days? 30 days is just an arbitrary thing. So we actually chopped the trial time in half. And actually, at that point in time, our trial conversion rate went up because the new cohort had less time. And because they had less time, they actually felt more pressure to use more of the features. And by using more of the features, they actually got more of the value because if somebody uses the features, they're like, oh, now I, I've used the features and I now know how to use the features and therefore I see more value and I'm more willing to give you my credit card. So you could see how that sort of, you know, if you use the product, you're more likely to get the product and therefore you're more likely to pay for it. But the moment we cut down the trial time, the conversion, uh, sorry, the number one support request became for a request for more trial time, as in I've run out of time, could I have more please? Um, and so we're constantly extending trials. So what we did, we actually cut down the trial time again, but we set up a little trigger within the app that allows you to extend the trial yourself based on key actions that you do within the app. So now when you join ProdPad, you actually get seven days, but if you do key actions like uh, fill in your company name, you get two days free. Um, tell us the name of your product, get a couple days. Uh, add your first idea, get a day free. Uh, set up a JIRA integration, get four days free. Uh, invite a colleague, get a few days free. Um, add your billing information, get some extra days free. So you actually earn extra trial time based on how you're actually using the app itself. And so what's the, what this is actually doing, each time you do these actions, you get a little demo of how to do it and, and that sort of thing. So people are learning how to use the app as they're going. So they're getting that demo. They're learning how to use each of the pieces of the app um, and they're unlocking pieces of the app and they're also getting the additional trial time that they wanted. Uh, and this itself actually bumped our conversion rate up hugely uh, and bumped our numbers up uh, and got us out of that slump that we had in 2015. So in, instead of solving it by throwing money at it and throwing investors at it, we solved it by throwing uh, uh, more of a UX and product mind at it. That's fantastic. Um, I love how specific you were about many of the things in there. And I also want to mention that uh, that's actually the, I think the year when I came across ProdPad um, was, uh, was 2015, probably through your, through your uh, <laughs> self, self-marketing. Um, I think I read, <laughs> I read uh, an article of yours about roadmaps and um, I was doing an assessment for Shutterstock on what we could do, how we could come up with a better plan for roadmaps because we'd been only using Using, you know decks and yeah. um and so i did an analysis and uh and tried to convince them to use prodpad oh fabulous um, yeah so <laughs> i i uh, this is part of why i reached out to you because i was like oh no i've known for years that they that uh prodpad knows knows how good product managers work oh um, fabulous <laughs> so, great it's been working excellent <laughs> <laughs> but i'd love to hear a bit more um about i i, I recall i think i read an article at some point that you called it you called it like the magically extending uh trial or something like that um yeah. But uh, tell us a little more. I love how, as you were talking through, you know, how you created that onboarding and trial experience to get people to do the actions that, um, 
you knew would teach them more about the tool and, and lead to better success. Um, you mentioned that there's different amounts of days free that you get for different things that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little more about how you came to those numbers and what kind of analysis you did to make those, those product decisions. Yeah. uh, I mean, at first, uh, I mean, you've got to start somewhere. So the first numbers we came up with were a a mixture of gut feel and, and, um, uh, you know, looking at um, uh, some of the the numbers that we're looking at. So what what we realized was that there were certain key actions that resulted in um, success. So things like um, people who uh, had more than one colleague in the tool, as in had invited another colleague, were more likely to pay for ProdPad, which makes sense. ProdPad is a collaboration tool. And if you collaborate with others, then you're more, like, more likely to buy it. So things like inviting a colleague um, are more valuable to, to us in the end. Uh, and therefore, you should get more time for that. So that one earns you more time than, say, something simpler like adding an idea. It's also more perceived effort. Like there's more, I don't know, mental effort, or I guess there's almost a like political expenditure to invite a colleague uh, even though it doesn't take more effort to type in a colleague's email address. So we're like, okay, well, here's three days for typing in your, your colleague's email address um, versus one day for uh, typing in an idea that you might have pinned to your, your uh, post a note on your, on your wall right now. So that was one of them. Um, uh, some of them are things that take a little bit more effort. So things like um, setting up a JIRA integration. We know that it takes a little bit more effort to do so, and therefore the payoff in doing so, you get a little bit more. That's why you get more days for doing that versus some of the stuff that's easier to do. We also know that uh, setting up an integration is a stickier, like it's an indication of a stickier customer. So we give more time for that. A customer who has Jira integrating, integrated with ProdPad is considerably more likely to stick around and, and use that. Again, that's, that sort of makes sense. Uh, and therefore, we give more for that. Other ones are uh, things that uh, make sense for uh, for us. Um, so uh, one of the ones that uh, is a little bit of a dark horse is uh, the fact that if you uh, have collected everything, so you've added your product, you've got your um, first idea in there, you've got your colleagues invited, you've added an integration, you've got your first persona, you've done all the things. At the bottom of the list, it says, add your billing information. So you've got 28 days, you know you can add an extra four days by adding your billing information early. Um, So instead of having your thing expire now, uh, you can actually extend your trial by an extra few days by adding your billing information today. So that one actually benefits us um, and you because you get an extra few days. And we actually have people go through and collect all the days. And that way they don't have to, they have that peace of mind that the trial is not going to run out. Um, and we have the peace of mind that your credit card is in there. Uh, we now know, or we've got pretty good uh, reassurance that you're going to be a paying customer. Um, and we're all happy. We've got a, a new future client on our hands. So we looked at it that way. But then we also set it up so that it was configurable so we could test these things and check and figure out which ones actually did result. So of the people who did X, Y, and Z, did they actually become paying customers? Um, Did that actually result in that sort of thing? Uh, We also set it up so that we could add new things to it. um, And so we can adjust them and tweak them and move them around. Um, the number of days at the that you can actually collect is arbitrary. You know, today it might be 35. Um, down the line, it might become 45 because we add new things to it. We actually don't really care how many days you trial. We just want to know that at the end of it, you're a happy customer. 
and that you um, have had enough time to understand the app and you're happy with it and you're good to go with it um, and your team is on board and you're successful with it. Uh, we don't want to ask for the money before you're comfortable with it. That's that's key to us. Um, and so the trial is really just a way of making sure that you are uh, feeling like you're getting uh, something in return for putting the effort in to, to learn about it and to test it out and to get your team on board and that sort of thing. Got it. Uh, so really, yeah, it's, it's sort of akin to, um, you know, Dropbox gives you storage space and uh, Slack mm -hmm. gives you credits, um, but we don't have a credit system or storage space uh, limitations, so we give trial time. Yeah, that's great. Um, so now that you're now that you're running a company as a product-minded uh, founder, um, tell us a little bit about sort of uh, have there been things that have been surprising about um, running the company? Not necessarily, you know, maybe it's within the product area or maybe it's outside of it. Uh, what has that experience and transition been like? <laughs> oh, what's been surprising? Um, lots of things, I guess. Um, I think one thing that's been very surprising is um, how it's not at all about product. Um, it's been a huge learning for me about um, how much is required in terms of uh, marketing and actually telling people and telling them again. Uh, we did the classic product thing of uh, build it and assume that they will come where, you know what, we build it, we build it, built it. And most of them, you know, we did have a lot of customers come, uh, but then we'd realize is that uh, uh, you know, good is sometimes the enemy of great, where we had good enough marketing, but not uh, great marketing. We've never really dabbled in paid advertising or really dabbled in too much in the way of social media or um, you know, much beyond our own blog. We've done some guest blogs. We've done bits and pieces like this. Uh, we, we occasionally do um, podcasts and uh, talks and bits and pieces like that. Uh, but to be honest, I think there's so much more that we could be doing out there. And I think it's a new learning area for us. Uh, but what's really interesting is that I'm taking it with a, um, a product mind. I'm looking at it going, well, isn't marketing just something that can be measured and learned from and iterated upon as we go? Uh, and therefore, what can we do to almost uh, approach it like a product manager, approach it like a scientist and uh, figure out what, you know, how we tackle it from there? Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and you can. Um, so my, you know, that first rocket ship that I decided to uh, take a seat on was, was in marketing. So I, I learned, um, you know, we had uh, teams inside MediaMath that analyzed and ran experiments on all the different levers that you could pull and figured out, you know, what, what impacts um, changes in each of them made on the, the bottom line for the marketing. Aha. Okay. Excellent. Yes. Um, and uh, I will also share as a um, as a fellow business owner, um, you know, who had to ramp up on the marketing side for my own business. One of the books that's really resonated with me because it speaks to the agilist's mindset is this book called um, 10x Marketing Formula by Garrett Moon. He's the okay. founder of um, CoSchedule. Oh, that's right. I know that one. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked that one. I thought that one really spoke well to the sort of like you're going to test and iterate and you're going to find out what customers want and all of that, but you're just applying a marketing plan instead of a software development plan to, to what you're doing with it. Okay. I really love that. Thanks for the uh, the recommendation. I'll, I'll pick that one up. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's a whole area that I need to absorb and learn from. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I feel like I've got to kind of uh, take all these recommendations on and, uh, you know, 
learn, figure out what I don't know, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so there's, there's, I mean, I think it, it would make sense to spend a little time on um, the stuff that you do know. So one of the things that, that I love about ProdPad is, is the way that the roadmap is uh, not, not based on dates. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'd love if you could tell a little more, you know, you must've had a lot of experiences um, both yourself and then with your um, consulting work, you know, about how, um, how have different companies reacted to that? And, um, and what are your sort of go-to responses for people who are hesitant? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, perhaps it helps to tell you about how we came to that format. Uh, because, uh, dirty little secret, the first version that was built in ProdPad was actually a timeline roadmap. Um, and this is before it was actually called uh, ProdPad. This is back when it was a tool to help me do my own job because my old bosses, uh, my old execs, they wanted me to provide them with a timeline roadmap, just like every other product manager that I knew back at the time. Uh, and you know what? Every time I showed them this Gantt chart of a roadmap, they patted me on the head and told me I was doing a good job and reinforced it. And I would diligently go back to my teams and try to get them to build this list of features that I'd outlined uh, and I'd feel terrible when something would slip and I wouldn't be able to do it and each month I'd end up uh, inevitably taking a few items on that roadmap and everything forward from that list and shuffling it forward by a few pixels or a few columns or whatever in order to make space for that whatever was buffered outwards Um, and I thought it was just me I thought it was just me who was just a terrible project manager and a terrible product manager by association and not able to come up with the right estimations and not able to quite uh, build out the right features um, uh, and build out the the right uh, stuff uh, in the right time uh, and everyone else was able to do so because every other product manager seemed to have this fixed roadmap and they would just be happily building along it right but it wasn't until no. the, well, okay, right? So it wasn't until uh, we built uh, ProdPad that I started exposing it to other product managers around me. And uh, they started using these roadmaps and their execs gave them praise for showing them this nice, shiny, new uh, jQuery-enabled drag-and-drop Gantt chart timeline roadmap. Uh, and the feature requests started coming in. And the top feature request was the ability to select multiple items in this timeline roadmap and like move them all across by like a month all at the same time. And had I, had I just listened blindly to the customer feedback, I would have just had like a multi-select drag and drop tool and just like been like, yeah, sure. Move everything across. June didn't work out. So we're going to do that July. Huzzah. Let's go. Q2 is the new Q3. Sure. Um, but I asked the five whys and dug down to like, why fundamentally are we all missing our deadlines? And that's when I realized that these deadlines are completely arbitrarily made up dates that we're giving people and the dates don't actually matter. Um, and so Simon and myself, my co-founder of Broadpad and myself sat down at a coffee shop in London and ripped up the timeline roadmap and said, if we had to do a roadmap, but we didn't want to have this timeline thing. What would it look like? And Simon sketched out three columns and he put current, near-term, future, and we sketched out these three boxes and said, well, what if we just 
threw out what we had and just put it together like this. And I pointed out that it'd be a heck of a lot easier to build, rebuild this in jQuery, and we wouldn't have to worry about X, Y, and Z, no dragging, dropping, all that junk that I'd just done. And I was a little bit gutted of having to throw out all this work that I'd done. Like I was, I was in love with the, the, the interface that I'd built and kind of gutted that I was throwing out a bunch of work. But at the same time, I realized that it would probably save some people some heartache. And I figured the worst thing that would happen is people would say, nope, I don't want it. Um, and so what we did, we put it out there and started showing it to people. And you know what was really interesting is that the, the feedback that started coming back was um, a lot of triumph. There was a lot of people who loved it. And what was really interesting is that we kept the, because we actually questioned as to whether we could still call it a roadmap. Like we really doubted ourselves going, well, it's not, it's obviously not a roadmap anymore. We can't call it that because it doesn't have, you know, the, 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 the roads anymore. <laughs> it doesn't look like a roadmap. Um, so are we allowed to call it that? And we decided to call it a roadmap. And what we realized had actually happened is that we've almost taken the name roadmap and re done it. We've, re, we've taken that name roadmap and changed what a roadmap means. Uh, it's as if we've given product managers permission to not do old school roadmaps, to change the way that they've done stuff. Because you know what, when execs now say, can you do a roadmap? They can look up roadmap and they have two different options. They have an old school roadmap or they have a now next later roadmap. Um, they have different ways of doing it. They don't have to have a timeline now. Uh, and so whenever I talk to people who are trying to get away from the old school version of roadmaps, I always ask them to figure out, like, why are you being asked for this timeline roadmap? Like, who is it that's asking? Is it a customer who's asking for it? Like, have you made somebody a promise and you've got, like, some contractual date that you've agreed on something? Is your company an agency? Is this your business model to do so? Um, you know, if so, then you're not a product company or an agency. And there's no shame in being an agency. But remember, agencies don't change the world. Agencies just make some money. Um, and that's the business model. That's okay, but you're not a product company. So just come to terms with that. Um, are you doing this because you've got, um, you know, you're in a slow moving regulated world and, you know, you, you, you literally cannot, you know, there's laws that are preventing you from being able to work outside of these these regulations and these 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 terms. Um, if so, are there things that you can do to carve off? Can you carve off just a percentage of your workforce to break out a startup lab or a hackathon or you know 20% time or 2% time or something to become slightly more lean? Are they arbitrary deadlines? Are they things that your boss is imposing on you just to have have this sense of control? Um, or are they actual strategically important externally driven deadlines that are important because they're the law or because they are uh, market driven deadlines like Christmas is coming in your e-commerce. So always figure out like why you have these deadlines, why you have these constraints um, and uh, drive back from there uh, and, uh, you know, question the, the, the reasoning at the source. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, uh, this bears that that is actually where I hit the problem in trying to get Shutterstock to to adopt ProdPad, um, okay. <laughs> because at the at that point in time um, I was a uh, group product manager, so I had um, you know there were VPs above me and PMs below me and other people at the group and director kind of level, and um, so I didn't have you know I tried to make the case that that we should go to this uh, dateless roadmap, yeah. and. Um, 
some there were there were some people there who who were like you know that that sounds interesting and then there were other people who were just like I do not possibly see how I can, you know, go to our leadership and tell them that this is a roadmap. Right. And, uh, and that, you know, at the time, um, I decided that that wasn't the battle I was going to fight at that time. And I was like, okay, we'll just, I'm, let this go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah. One, co- one common misconception is that a now next later roadmap doesn't have any dates. Mm-hmm. Uh, like sometimes you have to wean your, your company off the time the date roadmap. Uh, yeah. The problem with the timeline roadmap is that it's chart with time along the top and therefore everything underneath it has a date on it. Like just by the format, everything has a date. Yeah. Uh, whereas a now next later format doesn't have dates on anything unless you explicitly put a date on it. Um, sometimes things have due dates on them. Like, uh, like I remember last year, every company in the EU, actually almost every company in the world, had a GDPR card on the roadmap somewhere. It had a due date. Like, I'm sorry, we all had that card and it all had a due date. Um, Even us with the timeline-less roadmaps, right? Like a dateless roadmap. And just because like it was sat in the now column, it was something keeping us busy and it had a date on it. Um, And that's okay. Like you're allowed to have a date in there as long as you're explicitly saying like, this is something that's due and here's the things that we're working on that are below it and above it and everything else. And it's just there to communicate, like here's the things that are priority uh, that, that, that are taking priority and here's the things that are important. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have it represented in this line that stretches out with this end date on it um, and mm-hmm. everything else represented with magical end dates that you've made up around that as well, because you don't know those magical end dates. Um, you know, just because you you are forced to come up with a date, you're forced to state a date for one thing, doesn't mean you should magically make up a date for literally everything else around it, um, which is the problem with the date, date list, with a timeline roadmap. Yeah, um, absolutely. So sometimes um, it's easier to wean people off the, um, the format. And, uh, you know, if you can get from having 100% dates to just 50% dates, you're, you're doing better. Um, if you yeah. can get that down to 10%, even better. Yes. Um, I like that you talk about uh, weaning them off of it. Um, I, I will say that that's also what we do with, with most of our clients now. And, um, you know, what I landed on for the, for the things that were in my circle um, there was that within the PowerPoint decks, I would create roadmaps that um, were more of a now, next, later, uh, but would tell you the date for the things that I knew. You know, with this is close enough. I know when we're doing this one, you know, and then the others would just be like, yeah, in the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we really did kind of go that weaning direction, um, but just uh, I think overcame, uh, I think faced some challenges with getting buy-in for people to say for an entire group that they would all be willing to use this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. But, um, and another thing that you mentioned in there is uh yeah like i i love the gdpr example uh everybody will have gone through that really um and uh and then you know the same thing with um christmas and you know these other these other dates that those things all do come up and uh it's it's good to hear um how you recommend people show that for people who are you know concerned um i think the other thing that i've come across a lot that i'm curious to hear if you have um a perspective on what you tell people is uh, is sort of that control, um, the control-minded uh, pushback, the one where it's like, well, there's no there's no good external reason for this. There's Christmas is not an important date to us. Um, it's just that 
the people at the top of this company don't feel comfortable trusting their teams to deliver fast and furious according to their own objectives rather than with a timeline that they've produced and told everyone they would follow. Yeah. Um, what do you tell people in that situation that they should, uh, what, what, do, what do they do? Yeah, uh, really interesting. I mean, you know, Marty Kagan uh, did a really good talk about this um, recently at um, MTP Engage. The video's out as well um, that uh, might be interesting to share. But he talks about trust being a, a, a huge factor in empowering your teams. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, um, that I see that comes up time and time again is how uh, teams are being forced to make these promises on exactly what it is that they're going to be doing and then stick to those promises in order to provide this level of reinsurance to some exec somewhere as to what it is that's going to be delivered. Uh, and what that actually leads to is people adding all this buffer, because if you're not quite sure as to what it is you're going to do, you're going to add some buffer so that you cover your own butt so that, you know, if your two-day project actually ends up taking four days, um, then, you know, at least you said five days. Um, and therefore, you know, work expands to fill the time that's taken. So if it takes four days, you're cool. Um, so all of a sudden, two days ends up taking five days. And, um, you know, th things end up slowing down. So work ends up slowing down to, to, to fill this space. So you end up working as a team slower and slower and slower. And you end up becoming, you know, this is how you end up with teams who are huge, but get way less done than micro teams. Um, but also what happens is that if you have this arbitrary deadline, like let's say you're told to get a feature out by um, two weeks time, but at the end of two weeks, uh, something's gone a little bit wrong as things do in software development because things do. Um, uh, at the end of two weeks, something isn't quite right. And the developers have the choice of making it right, but it, it'll take an extra week. Or they could get it out and to the product manager and to the customers and to the execs, it looks right. But you know what? They could have done a better job with some unit testing or with the coding or with the, um, uh, you know, it probably could have been done better. The documentation could have been done better. Um, there's always something that could have been done better. Um, so that stuff gets left. And, you know, maybe they planned on going back and fixing it in V2, but V2 is the biggest lie ever told. Like, no one is ever given permission to go back and fix it in the second version. Uh, and so they launch it that first week, and they never get the chance to go back and fix it. And this is where tech debt comes in, because if you're told to launch something, uh, and you never get that permission to go back and make it as high quality as it could be, this is the type of tech debt that causes companies to grind to a halt two years later when their tech debt has just piled up and no one wants to train on it. They don't have the documentation. Uh, no one is able to understand why it was built a particular way. It's littered with to-dos and unfinished comments. There's no unit testing or whatever else. Um, and they wonder as to why they've got startups who are able to outperform them, who are moving fast and eating their, you know, market for breakfast. Um, and so this is how big, slow-moving companies are getting absolutely eaten alive by faster-moving startups. Yes. I was, as soon as you started that, I was like, tech debt, tech debt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I tell my developers to 
build the products. We don't have we don't do deadlines here unless absolutely necessary, like GDPR or there's an event coming up. Um, and even then, we try to make sure that we've got everything if possible in place to make sure that we're not building up tech debt or organ- organizational debt or any kind of debt really. Um, because you know the way that I look at it, I tell the developers to build it in a way that you would be proud enough and happy enough to launch this and explain it to a developer in two years time. Imagine you yourself are going to be training your junior developer in two years time and you have to explain why you built it this way using your own documentation, your, your own comments in the code and you know everything else. Like you want this thing to be standing up and you want to be able to be proud of this work um, because you know you're going to be supporting this code in two years time and you're going to be training new people on it. So don't just finish it and make it look good to your product person and to the customer. Make it look good to the people who are going to be building on top of this. Like, don't just build this in a quick way. Build it to be good. I don't care if it's going to take an extra three days. Make it good. I know it looks like you're doing nothing. Um, doesn't look any different to us. I'm not going to question you. Just make it better. Um, do what you need to. Um, and hopefully in two years time, uh, we're not doing a refactor. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the type of thing that we're, uh, we're hoping to, uh, is going to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, that's great. And that, that kind of thing, um, also attracts better talent, you know, so you'll get better coders if they know that this is a place where they have the space to do it right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then that feeds into each other, and um, and it's all it's all interconnected. So, yeah, um, awesome. Well, I think we're about out of time. So um, this has been fantastic, and I'm sure I could talk about these things for for much longer with you. But um, what would be your final words that you'd want to share with um, maybe a product minded founder or a product leader who's in the thick of it um, these days? Uh, really good question. Um, you know what? Any uh, product-minded founder um, who's in the thick of it, I always recommend to think about any of the processes that they're going through as a product in itself, as something that can be uh, measured and iterated upon itself. So always think about the processes that you're doing. Um, take a step back and think about what kind of things you can do to measure those and improve upon those. Um, be honest with yourself. Be honest with your team. Communicate those. Um, do retros on how you work uh, and what kind of things that you've been doing as a team. Uh, and so what you can do to improve on those. And you'll constantly see those uh, the, the those improvements take place within your team as you grow. Great. I love it. Um, and how can people find you if they'd like to, to follow you or ProdPad? Uh, so come find me. I am Jana Basto on LinkedIn. So come connect with me there. I am Simply Basto on Twitter. So come follow me and say hi. My DMs are open. Uh, and come try out ProdPad. It's a free trial. You can try as long as you want. And that is ProdPad.com. Wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks so much for having me, Holly. This was a great conversation. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. 
enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.